Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Chronicles of Mister. I am Mister Pierre, and I am joined by uh, Kevin Schrock. Did I say that right? You did. That's exactly it. Excellent, excellent. So, Kevin, I saw you first on TikTok, and I know you've got a couple uh, videos that are have gone have done really, really well, and that have gone viral. The one particularly for me was where you were explaining the negative times the negative. Why is it equal to a positive? Which I thought you did chef's kiss of explaining so very well um if i could ask you knowing that your handle on tiktok is engineer to educator can you explain what that transition is and why you chose that handle yeah exactly right so my handle is engineer to educator with the number two you can find me on tiktok or on instagram or on youtube using the same name and it's because i first went into industrial engineering as my career path in order to figure out how math is used in the real world and to be able to address student questions that were wondering why they were being asked to take all of these classes that didn't seem to perfectly align with the major they had chosen in college. And I wanted to be able to go and find those answers and to be able to provide more insight than what the back of the chapter and the practice problems could. Awesome, awesome. And then knowing that you didn't start off in education, how long has it been since you've been um, as a professor? I have been instructing or working in academia for the last four years. I have been tutoring since I was about 18, but then in about 2018, I went back to get my master's in math education. During my time in graduate school, I started teaching, and then I became a full-time instructor before I then transitioned to where I am now, which is the manager of the Math Assistance Center at Northern Illinois University. Awesome, awesome. Knowing that education, like you said, is, or at least math. <laughs> I'm a middle school math teacher, so watching your content has been like gold to be able to distill, you're able to distill in such a, a great way, quick way for kids to be like, ah, oh, okay, this is what it is. Um, it has been really, really enjoyable on my end. Was that always sort of like the dream for you? Was that the, I said, end game, if you will? Sure, I've always been interested in understanding math for its story, for its variety of visual representations, for the variety of different places you can apply it to. And so I've always just been attracted to the subject because I've known of it as only a creative endeavor, as something that sparks interest, as something that I can use in the daily world if I go out and look for places to apply it. And that's the, the opinion of math that I want to bring to the rest of the world, I want to show them that math is engaging, that there is beauty in the subject matter, that it isn't just about doing every other odd numbered problem that appears in these homework assignments, that there actually is a reason why it is one of our oldest topics of exploration and why so many people from so many different backgrounds are attracted to it. Yeah, I love it. So how do you introduce math to your, your students? I like to introduce it. I, I'm a challenging individual, so I, I've I've been told that I can be polarizing at times, especially in my teaching style, because I grew up in a household that was highly academic, and we debated a lot, and there was a lot of you know, contradictory opinions for the purpose of just trying to explore what the best argument might be. And so when I teach, I often start off with a difficult question to, to let my students know who I am and my approach, one of my favorites is to ask them what they think the definition of math is. 
And from that, I get a lot of very interesting responses. I get students saying that math is about numbers, but then I have to push back and say, algebra is a topic that tries to remove those numbers. So it must not just be about the numbers. And they say, oh, it's about numbers and variables, things that are supposed to represent numbers. And I have to remind them that geometry is about building things. And we don't always need numbers in order to determine properties of different shapes. And then they say, oh, it's about problem solving. And I have to tell them that there are entire fields of mathematics that were invented before there was an application known, like number theory. That is a topic of mathematics that was explored and mathematicians are quoted as saying that they are interested in studying it because it has no real world value. But then fast forward 40 years and it has become the foundation of us doing credit card encryptions and data transfer across computers. So it really is about trying to say like what you think math is might not be true to the subject. And finally, I shared it with them my definition. And my definition is that math is a model of logic, just three simple words, it's a model of logic. So as long as we have new and interesting questions that humanity is exploring, then we will have opportunities for new and better math. You just said something that I've heard parents say to me. Well, kiddos have then relayed to me what their parents have said to them in regards to like, what is this new math that you're learning? And have emailed me and said, Mr. Pierre, what is this new math? This isn't the math that I was taught when I was a young person. And my first initial thought is like, yeah. Like, I would hope that 30 years from now that what our kiddos are presently being taught is not the same as what they're going to be taught um, 30 years from now. Like, what is your answer or response to, to folks who, who may have those same type of questions? Or same oh, type yeah, of absolutely. I'm, I'm right on board. Imagine what we would be like as a society if in 40 years we hadn't found a better way to teach or we hadn't found a better way to build a road or in any ways discuss mathematics. Like, of course, it's going to evolve. It should evolve. We don't want to be a stagnant culture. And more importantly, I think it's interesting to show people that math has evolved quite dramatically throughout history. If you go back to 300 BC, there was no concept of the number zero. And even numbers needed to always be drawn. They couldn't be necessarily written. And then you fast forward to about uh, 700 AD, and you've got India and the Middle East as the center for mathematical thinking. They are the ones who are in charge of navigation and astronomy. That's why we have differing number systems in our language, why there's 12 hours a day or 12 hours on our clock instead of 10, because it came from a different culture. Fast forward to Western Europe, and all of a sudden mathematics is taking on much more of a discussion approach where it's writing persuasive essays. You fast forward to the early 1900s in America and it's one room schoolhouses where we're trying to teach multiplication tables by giving songs and rhymes. And then you've got the new age math that we're probably most familiar with in the 70s, but that's now become the old new math. The new new math is the common core approach. And it's like, yes, because we want to continue evolving and changing so that we can address the needs of the world. You saying the new new math makes me think of Incredibles too. That scene where Mister Incredible is with Dash, <laughs> and he's like, "What is this?" Right. The math is always it's just, math just is it just but it's it's so not like if you go back in time to early nineteen hundreds, there were people who thought that seven times eight was fifty six, not because they knew what that meant, but because it was the next verse in the song. 
that it was just a fact to have memorized. And I think that that is the absolute antithesis of what math is because it makes it sound like somebody discovered it on some stone tablets somewhere and it's just this truth on the universe that maybe we found through trial and error. But it's not. There are stories and demonstrations and visualizations and it's approachable if you just find somebody who's willing to show you why it actually works that way. Was that the case for you? Did you have someone who was willing to show you why math was it was or have that sort of discussion with you? I did, yeah. So a big influence and a big privilege that I had growing up was that my mom is a math teacher at the college level. So I had a at-home tutor to be able to answer these questions. And I was somebody who was willing to push back on simple answers that I was given by teachers. So if my teacher said, why can't you divide by zero? My question was, why not? Like, who decided? Is this an authority figure I need to go and follow? Like, who is this person? And thankfully, I had my mom to be able to show me why that was true. Or I could ask questions like, they say that uh, this, this decimal goes on forever. And my question would be, who checked? Like, if it went on forever, who figured that out? Did we go to the end of forever and confirm that? Like, these were the questions that I just wanted to ask. And I remember very clearly coming back one day from middle school and ask, like, I was frustrated because I was working on something that I didn't see the value in. And I'm at the table and my parents go, what were you studying today? And I say, oh, I'm learning about lines and they have this slope and I don't know why I need to know this or how it's going to be used in the world. And immediately the dinner table is cleared off, dishes are put away, a graph paper comes out, and we're all collaborating around this problem and talking about how it's used for designing and, and constructing ramps for handicap accessible buildings, how it's used to be able to talk about where money is going to be projected towards or how I can use it to save my weekly allowance to be able to buy the thing I want. And that's just how I grew up with it. I grew up with math not being drill and kill, but instead being interesting applications that have good thought behind them and in a conversation that I can engage with even if I am not yet an expert. Interesting, interesting. That's that's dope. That's dope. I'm going to just assume and make a wild guess that we all have our favorite teacher. Was your mom your favorite teacher? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But I, I also am just very honored with a lot of the teachers that I've grown up with. I think that the, the secret sauce to being a good math teacher is just don't ever present it as a rule. Like I am adamant that even the things that are called rules in math are not rules. Yeah. They might be patterns, they might be shortcuts, they might be, uh, uh, at the very most we could call them in the formal language, we might call them axioms. And those are just truths that we are assuming in order to have the conversation begin someplace. But all of those aren't rules. They're just like, they're, they're they're, they're things that you could choose to change or explore if you wanted to. Are, okay. I'm going to ask you something. I think I know the answer to it already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You talk about rules. And if we're going to talk about rules, that means, you know, that some sort of grade or score has to come into the mix. And this is sort of like a... We're going to talk sports. This is an alley because I know you've written about this when it comes to grading. Like, what is your belief about grading? Yeah. So I, I as much as I love math, I am also uh, 
fascinated with the idea of math education, which is my master's focus, and I'm getting my doctorate in education right now as we speak. But for my thesis, I published on the topic of self-reflection based grading. My full title was the relative effect of, or the effect of self-reflection grading on relative student success in undergraduate calculus one, which is a mouthful. But essentially what I did was I explored what would happen if we removed graded from the homework and quizzes that my students were given. The theory that I had, the hypothesis that I had, which has been shown in many other pieces of research is that there is a learning mindset students can adopt or a performing mindset. In the performing mindset, then they are going to choose the least risky path towards trying to get the most points possible. This is where teachers get that frustrating question from students when the student asks, do I need to know this because it will be on the test, right? Is this going to be on the test? which is not what learning should feel like. But yet again, that's how a lot of the structures within academia are set up. To replace that, there is the option of having students adopt a learning mindset. And a learning mindset is one where students are willing to take risks in the same way that they would if they were playing a video game, because there are unlimited attempts to try again, and there is no penalty for being wrong the first time. So by removing grades from homework and quizzes, I could give my students the opportunity to explore information for the first time in whatever way made most sense to them. And I could give them feedback without them feeling like they were being judged, and that made them comfortable to try again. By the time it came to the tests, I was able to measure across the different groups, those who had opted out of grading versus those who wanted the traditional approach. And I saw that amongst the tests I gave and in comparison on the final exam, which was graded by a committee for the department, the students who were not graded as often had much more improvement across the semester. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Was there anything else that you saw that was interesting for um, the research that you've done? Oh, I mean, so much more than that. Not only did they perform better, they were much happier. And I took different surveys of them throughout the semester. They were much more willing to uh, spend additional time on their tasks. They said that they would be really interested in having this be an approach that other math classes and other classes across different topics all adopted. Uh, they, they, it, was, it was really just overwhelming. They really enjoyed math because they didn't feel like they were going to be penalized for not just blindly following what I was telling them in class. Nice, nice. If I were to ask you, because we know that so many folks are choosing to leave the profession, and I'm so glad that you are choosing to join. Um, what is keeping you, or what is like bringing you joy in the work that you're, you're doing? Oh, this is a really interesting topic. It's something that I, I speak very passionately about on my TikTok channel is the idea that there is a mass exodus of teachers. And I do prefer the phrase teacher exodus as opposed to teacher shortage, because there are a bunch of certified teachers still out in the workplace. They are just choosing not to work in education because education is not rewarding them for the work and the skill set that they have. Uh, and it, 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 it's disheartening 
Um, and it's something that I got to experience firsthand because I went from being an engineer where I was making over $100,000 a year with about a $90,000 signing bonus across three years. I was in the upper echelon of income earners for sure. And when I wanted to transition into teaching, not only did I have to lose all of that, that opportunity to work while I was studying again, but even if I worked as a TA, I was making about $22,000 a year. And by the time that I graduated with my master's degree and I was working in higher education full time, I was still only making 40. Specifically, I was making 38,000. So I had to work two other teaching jobs as an adjunct in order to boost my total income up to 55,000. So I'm working almost the equivalent of a 60 hour work week to make $55,000. It was a very high barrier to entry, which although I am, I can't imagine doing anything else besides teaching and I am willing to live in a shoebox in order to make that happen. I do have to think about the fact that there are others who don't have the ability to withstand that type of income cut or they don't have the ability to work for or to study for two years without being paid adequately or if you're going into k-12 through teaching you have to take an entire semester where you work not only for free but you have to pay the university for the privilege of working because it still charges you tuition that's that's a that is a hurdle that is infuriating to me because it keeps a lot of potentially would-be great teachers out of the field and instead causes the ones entering the field to be only those of certain economic status. Thank you for saying that part out loud because that is such a, a privilege to be able to, to know, yeah, that not everyone is, those who want to, like you said, there are potentially great teachers who would love to enter the profession, but there are just so many hurdles that is prevent, that's preventing them from being able to do that. Yeah, so, so thank you for, for articulating that. If I were to ask you, because also going back to that grading, is there a book that you are reading or read that you're like, hey, this is a really good book to, to read that touches on some of the things that you just mentioned in regards yeah, to- Yeah, I've got it. I've got it next to me. So this is, this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, not only because of its conclusions, but because of its approach, most especially because of its approach. And that is Grading for Equity. It is by Joe Feldman. And I like this book a lot because it approaches the field of teaching and education in the way that makes my industrial engineering brain quite happy. It starts with data. It uses the data to draw interesting questions. And then it digs into those questions with research and study and that, that, I think, is an approach to improvement that is not always adopted, especially in higher education, but also sometimes in the K through 12, where we are very, I would say, eager to run towards the next shiny approach before confirming that it is making the desired impacts on our students. 100%, 100%. And to anyone who's listening, that book, Grading for Equity by Joe Feldman, please, 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 if you're able to pick it up, it is a fantastic read. I know that there's a particular quote that you love. Do you mind reading that quote? Oh, yeah. Let me find that one here. Here we are. <laughs> Easy to find in the book because I flip to it so often. This is one of the, if I, was, if I wished I had written a single sentence 
this is the sentence that I wish I had written. And it goes, any given day, we as teachers may provide a learning experience that fundamentally alters a student's life trajectory, an intellectual awakening, a deeper understanding of who they are and what they can become, a kindling of a passion or a realization of their voice. That, that to me, that is why I became a teacher because of the potential to just say the right thing at the right time that significantly empowers the student to pursue the lifestyle that they would like. That's it. That's it. I love to ask my guests who are on this podcast, the last question has to do with, because we're not just one thing, singularly one thing, you're an educator and an engineer, as well as a myriad of other things. I'm a math teacher, middle school teacher. I love music. So I'd love to ask uh, the guests as well, if they were to create a playlist with at least five songs, five artists, five albums, what would it be? Drive through that question to you. What would be on your uh, Mr. Shock's playlist? Oh, there's so many good ones. I am somebody who very much enjoys dancing and EDM type music. I think it pumps me up and puts me in my best mindset when I'm going to get in front of some students. I do like uh, a song called Dancing in the Kitchen by Lanny. I think that my Alexa device corrected me when I said it wrong earlier. Uh, so that's, that's a good one that I like quite a bit. I do enjoy some Martin Garrix and other good EDM songs that are feel goods. And I would say that another soundtrack that's had a really big impact on me has been The Greatest Showman. There's specifically a song called A Million Dreams, and it reminds me all the time that I am not the only person who is trying to fight an uphill battle and cause a change that I think is needed and important in the world. That, that soundtrack, when I listen to it, does just rev me up and remind me that some battles are worth fighting. Folks who are listening to this podcast or watching this, there were quite a number of few <laughs> gems that were dropped. I think for me particularly, looking into the, the research that you mentioned, that thesis paper that you wrote regarding either the, the learning mindset or just that, what was the other mindset? It's either the learning mindset or... Or a performing mindset. Performing mindset. That, that for me, I think is the, the gem that I'm picking up or that I'm dealing with or juggling with the, the most of like, how can I encourage my kids to have this learning mindset rather than the performing mindset and what ways can i bring that into the, the classroom and curriculum and all that i'm doing so that they can be less risk averse and like hey let's take a risk let's take a risk let's take a risk so that they can actually see their full potential and like the quote that you just read from the book look to be like all right i thought i was actually here and in reality i'm can actually hit this and then once they get there to realize oh yeah it can keep moving up so uh, you keep pushing that ceiling higher and higher higher and higher yeah that's what's up so folks this has been another episode of the chronicles of mr i'm mr pierre he's mr schrock and we're out thank you very much for tuning in